This story comes as a true one. It was happened in some church, a Baptist church, I think, but I'm not sure which one. Years ago, I do know it wasn't this one, so you can kind of hang on to that as I get into this. But uh, as it happens, one morning, Sunday morning, there was a man in the church who was looking for something, and he came across one of those custodial closets where different supplies for the custodian are kept. And as he opened the door to that closet, he noticed sitting back in the corner of it were five brand new brooms wrapped in plastic, five of them. And he immediately went ballistic. I cannot believe that the church bought five brooms. Why in a po- how could we possibly need five brooms? And he kind of decided at that point that he was going to get to the bottom of this issue. And so he closed the closet door and he started walking down the hall. And lo and behold, the first guy that he runs into is the youth minister. And he, he just almost pins the youth minister to the wall. He was so aggressive. I want to know where those five brooms came from. And the youth minister, as most youth ministers, I have no idea where brooms, I don't even know what a broom is. What do you mean, where did we get five? And the guy said, I was in the closet and I saw that there are five brooms in there and I want to know what in the world is the deal. How did we come across buying five brooms? And the youth minister said, sir, I, re- I don't have any idea, but I'm late for a class and I need to go. And he just whoosh, exit stage left. Well, so that just kind of ramped it up a little bit for the broom guy. So he starts moving down the hall, and he actually now he starts searching somebody out. The next guy that he gets of any kind of consequence, in his opinion, is the minister of education. And he starts in with him, I want to know where these five new brooms came from. Why do we need five new brooms? How in the world? Who made the decision to buy five new brooms? Education guy said, sir, I don't have any idea. I don't, I don't have anything to do with those kind of purchases, so I just don't have any idea. He said, I suppose you probably need to talk to the pastor. Let me just give you the time out on the story. Those kind of problems typically don't bring them to the pastor right before he's getting up to preach, okay? But this guy didn't care about that because he had five brooms that we have to have an accounting for these five new brooms. So he goes to the pastor's office, marches in, throws the door open, doesn't knock, doesn't ask anything. He throws the door open. I want to know where those five new brooms came from. And the pastor said, what? So the guy goes through the whole story. But by now his blood pressure is high. His nose, face is red. He's livid because of these five brooms. Pastor says, you know, I don't have any idea about five brooms. I have other things that are a little more important this morning. But I tell you what, because it's such an issue for you, let's get to the bottom of it. Well, I think we should get to the bottom of it. I want to know where these things came from. Who made that decision? So they go and they seek out the chairman of the finance department. And they catch him, and the pastor is kind of apologetic, but at the same time just wants to get Captain Happy off of his back. And so he says to the chairman of the finance committee, What's the deal with, he, you know, he's nosing around, excuse me, he was looking around and he found five brand new brooms. He is upset. Can you give us any explanation? The chairman of the finance committee said, yes, I can tell you what happened. We needed brooms. And if we bought in bulk, we got a cheaper rate on them. And so we just decided we're always going to need them around here. So we bought five. We needed a couple extra. So we just bought five and we put them in there and we're saving them until we need them. 
Well, again, Captain Happy's not all that happy about that, but at least it's an explanation. And so he kind of storms off, and the pastor and the finance committee chairman are standing there together, and the pastor says, man, I don't know what that was all about. I just, I don't understand it. What is the deal over five brooms? And the chairman of the finance committee said, let me put it to you this way, pastor. Every penny that he has ever given to God's work is now tied up in five brooms. And he doesn't like that. Yeah, we're going to talk about money today. But having said that, I want to kind of give you a little bit of an out and uh, help you understand this is not just about money. But let me throw this statement at you. And we'll come back to it in a little bit. Actually, we're going to come back to a couple of different statements. But here's the first one I want you to get. How you handle your money is an indicator of how God fits into your life. I'll let it sink in, and I'll say it again. How you handle your money is an indicator of how God fits into your life. That is especially true at the intersection of mercy and your resources. All right, I'm going to repeat it because these are the main points. Matter of fact, if you have to leave early, then these are the main points, all right? How your money is handled in your life is an indicator of how God fits into your life, and nowhere is that more true than at the intersection of mercy and your resources. When your resources and your mercy come to a decision point, your Christian life is on trial. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. One story, these, I'm not sure how true these are, but they come across as uh, at least to make the point. So one is of a miser. He claimed to be a Christian, but he was known in town as being a miser. And because he was a miser, he had the first dime that he ever made. And he had just tons of money. And everybody knew that he had tons of money in the community. And so as they began to deal with him, people would talk to him about you know, supporting their causes. He never would help in anything like that. Well, it came that time of the year, like the March of Dimes or something like that. And, and the community was raising some money for charitable good, uh, activity. And they talked about how they were going to put the word out in the community. And one somebody said, you know, if we just went over here to Mr. Miser, then probably he could give enough of a gift. It wouldn't hurt him at all, and it would help us meet our goal. And everybody said, oh, he never gives anything. Nobody, no, he never. The chairman of the fund drive said, you know what, I'm going to make an appointment. I'm going to go talk to him. So he did. He wicked in. He said, he's a Christian. He said, surely this will matter to him. So he made an appointment, went in and talked to him, and he sat down with him. He said, okay, now... We're doing our annual fund drive for such and such a charity in our community, and we would like to know if you uh, would give a donation. Because we were looking at our records, and we see, according to our records, that you've never supported this. And being a Christian man, we've thought, sure, you would want to support this. And so Mr. Miser looks at him, and he says, uh, Do your records also indicate that I have a mother who is a widow. My father died many years ago. My mom has almost no resources at all. Do your records indicate that? 
And they said, well, no, sir, we didn't know that. He said, do your records indicate that I have a brother who is on disability because of work-related accident 20 years ago, and he doesn't have any kind of income? Do your records indicate that? And they said, no, sir, we didn't know that. He said, do your records indicate that I have a daughter who's a widow, and she was left with three young children? Do your records indicate that? And they said, no, sir, we didn't know any of that stuff. We're sorry to hear all of that. And he said then to to the guy in charge of the community fund drive, he said, if those are my family members and I refuse to support them, why would I support your cause? At the intersection of mercy and your resources, your Christian life is on trial. Consider, this comes from Ireland. And Father O'Shea was going around the community and he was kind of drumming up business. In other words, you know, church is coming, hope to see you on Sunday. You know, that kind of stuff preachers do. And so this Catholic priest was going through the countryside and he came across one of his members and he said to him, hey, I, I hope you'll be at church Sunday. He said, no, Father, I'm not going to be able to make it this week. I got something else going on. And he said, well, since you're not going to be there, let me just give you a real quick summary of the homily this week, the message. And the guy says, Great. So he's standing there and this Catholic priest is going through the deal with him. And he said, this week we're going to be talking about charity and about giving to help other people. And the guy said, okay, well, good. I, you know, I think that's a good idea. The father, I'm so glad to hear you say that it's a good idea. He said, Look, just case in point, if you had two sheep and your neighbor didn't have any, would you give him one? And the guy said, well, sure I would. He said, that's great to hear. So the the Catholic priest then said, well, if you had two chickens and your neighbor didn't have any, would you give him one of your chickens? He said, yes, I would. He said, if you had $10, would you give him five if you knew he didn't have any money to eat? He said, absolutely, I would. He said, okay, if you had two cows, would you give him one of your cows? He said, no, sir, not on your life. I wouldn't give him one of my cows. And the father said, well, why is that? He said, because I do have two cows. At the intersection of mercy and your resources, your Christianity is on trial. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to put it in my terms, people matter. And because people matter, there are times it's going to cost you something to show that, that you know that. Here's the statement that we'll definitely come back to at the end. We are most like God when we see and treat other people like God treats them. We're most like our Heavenly Father when we see people and treat them the way He does. Let me say a couple of things here, first of all, as we get into this message By the way, we're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But I want to say a couple of things. First of all, this is not a message on tithing or giving to the church. All right? Everybody clear on that? I'm not trying to get into your pocket this morning. I feel like I need to give you that disclaimer before we even start because in our day and age, so many people are so hypersensitive to preachers talking about money that I just want to let you know that I'm not talking about getting into your pocket here this morning. 
I'm not talking about how much you give to the church. I don't know how much you give. I'll never know how much you give unless you tell me, okay? That's not what this is about. What this is about is your Christianity and where your feet hit the ground and your resources hit the ground in everyday living. And I also want to say as a disclaimer that this is not one of those sermons where the preacher jumps up and says to the church at large, we're not doing this very well, so we need to jump on the program. Okay, one of the things I know at the outset here, been here nine months now or just short of nine months, I've been here long enough to see that Crestwood has a deep investment in this community and some of the stuff that I'm talking about today. Not even just this community, but even beyond this through some of our members. So I'm not really jumping up here today to say, hey, we're not doing this, we should do better. I am jumping up here to say that there are good reasons for a lot of what we do And one of those reasons is found in this passage of Scripture. And by the way, I hope that it will be a challenge for us to do what we do already, to do it even more and even better. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning, I'm going to actually read from verse 1, but we'll start the passage from verse 2. Because verse 1 captures the principle that Jesus is talking about. Verses 2 through the rest, well not really the rest of the chapter, through basically verse 18, will be three different examples of the principle that he's giving us in verse 1. In verse 1 it says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What he's saying with that, Jesus is saying, in this Sermon on the Mount, is that our motive matters. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Don't. As we said last week, when it comes to doing your religious service, and I use that in a positive sense, Jesus essentially says, stop showing off. Don't do it for the praise of people. Verse 2, now we get into the passage for the day. Thus, in other words, based on verse 1, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. We're most like God when we see and treat people the way he does. What I want to do this morning is a little different from the way I normally approach a passage. I want to look at three different key interpretation issues of these verses that we just read. And then I want to jump to some applications at the end. So this is kind of a sermon in two halves. And the first part of it, I just want to highlight a few things out of the passage and see what he could be saying and what, so that we can really understand what Jesus is getting at. So the first part of it comes in verse 2. And in verse 2 he says, When you give to the needy. Now that's the translation that I'm using. Other translations say it a different way. One says, uses the term almsgiving, A-L-M-S-G-I-V-I-N-G, almsgiving. Now, I don't use that word every day. As a matter of fact, frankly, I can't remember that I've ever used that word except when I'm talking about this passage of Scripture. So that's not one of the vernacular for us on a day-to-day thing. But almsgiving means, and other passages will say, or other translations will call it charitable acts. Literally, the word that Jesus uses here is one that comes from 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which is the fifth beatitude where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's the same word pulled over, used in a different way, so it's, you know, it doesn't look exactly the same when you look at it. It's the same word, same idea coming over. It literally means acts of mercy. So what Jesus is saying then, if I use that translation in this verse, thus when you do your acts of mercy, it refers to the needy in our world. And when I say in our world, I mean in our world. Each of you in a circle of people who desperately need Christ, well, in that circle of people of your world, there are going to be some who are needy. And you're going to come across people and you'll bump into people and it's going to be obvious that they are needy. And so the word now is the acts of mercy that we have with them. Make sure that our motive is right. That's basically what Jesus is saying. But he says something else here that causes us a little bit of interpretive struggle. He says, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. By the way, wouldn't you like to be known by Jesus as a hypocrite? Hello? Okay, no, thank you. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. We don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to here from first century Jewish life. It is possible that he's referring to the sounding of trumpets that often occurred as they went to a season of fasting because of some kind of a natural disaster. We're going to get to fasting uh, not too far uh, ahead in this next part of the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm going to save most of those comments for that. But I'll say this, that when the Jews came into times of national crisis, whether it's uh, an outside influence coming in on them, foreign power or something like that, or usually like a drought or something, then they would often call a national fast as a way for the people of that group of people, that people group, to say, God, we need your help here. We're going to ask you to be gracious on us, and so we're going to abstain from food for a period of time, and we're going to pray, and we're going to focus in. And often when they would do those kinds of fasts, they would signal the beginning of that with a call of trumpets all across the country so people would know, okay, now's when you're supposed to start. Often when that happened, the more wealthy among them would make gifts, monetary gifts, for the good of the poor among them. So it could be that Jesus is referring to that practice, although I don't really think that's what it is here. It also could be that he's referring to something that happened in the streets of Jerusalem on a regular basis. And that is because of Jerusalem and its um, semi-arid environment there, not much water in that particular area. Their streets, by the way, the old city of Jerusalem, Teresa and I went there, their streets with shops on either side are about the width of our um, center aisle here. So you get hundreds of people in, sh- in a very small space, shops everywhere, uh, and it's hot and it's a dangerous environment for dehydration, that kind of stuff. So occasionally the richer people among them would bring water in, but they would want some notoriety for that. And so when they'd bring water in and put it at a given place, they would bring with them a trumpeter who would sound the trumpet and it would just kind of reverberate off those stone walls and stone walkways. And you could hear it all over the place and it was a signal that said, hey, there's water over here. The key to that is that those water benefactors would stand next to the water in a very pompous kind of 
positioned so that as people came to get water, they would be sure to notice who was the one who gave it to them. It could be that Jesus is referring to that when he talks about sounding no trumpet. could also be, this is the third option, that what he's actually doing here is he's referring to some of the chests that were laid in various places with a horn-like opening at the top and they were specifically for receiving money that was to be given to the indigent of their society. By the time Jesus says these words on the Sermon on the Mount, the Jews had, ri- had raised charitable giving, acts of righteousness. They use the term almsgiving. They had raised it to a level where in many eyes it was more important than even offering a sacrifice at the temple. In other words, their charitable giving was more a religious experience for them than it was just a social experience. Those chests that received money with their horn-like openings made of metal were the places where some of the people who really wanted to be seen as they walked kind of like driving through a toll booth on a toll road. As they walked through, they would take their coins and they would throw them in so that they made a lot of noise rattling around as they went down into the receptacle. We don't know exactly what Jesus is saying with this. Those are three options. I think the fourth option is best. And that is that Jesus essentially is saying here, don't draw attention to yourself. It's a hyperbole. It's not, there's no recorded evidence that anybody who was going to give an offering would have trumpeters in front of them as they went to give it. We don't find that in any of our records. So it's most likely that Jesus is just using a hyperbole that says, essentially, don't blow your own horn when you go to do these acts of mercy. Well, that may very well be what he's saying. That does seem to fit some of how our society approaches charitable giving. You ever notice, those of you who graduated from some institution, you ever notice that you get letters inviting you to give in support of the college that you went to? Have you ever noticed that when they are doing some particular kind of fun drive, that they'll send you a letter that says, we would like for you to give, and then they'll give you a report, and they, in their report, they'll break it out in various levels of giving, you know, $5,000 or more. I like the one that says zero to $5. That's my favorite. But they don't just break it up into that. They report to you who has given in each of those areas. You know why they do that? Because they know that the human condition is such That if you have a friend who gave more than you did, you're more likely to give more. You see somebody gave 5,000 and you only gave 4,000, well, you're going to pony up another one. Don't think that that's not true in religious circles, by the way. Texas Baptists have, actually there's two different groups of Texas Baptists, officially speaking. Both of them have their own newspaper. And each of those two entities, by the way, our church is duly aligned, okay? So we're with both of these groups. So we get both of these newspapers. And on a periodic basis, seems like it's once a quarter, both of those groups will publish a list of every church in the state that contributes to them. 
and they'll show how much that state has given to the cooperative program on the statewide level. You understand what I'm saying with that? How many churches do you suppose there are in the state of Texas? Well, we get a list of every one of them once a quarter, and it shows out beside them how much that church has given to cooperative program cause. You know what I do? I get it. I look at the first, what do you suppose is the first thing I look at in that list? How much we gave. We think it's the second thing I look at. How much the church down the street gave. Well, I may or may not do that. I'll let you decide whether I'm guilty of that too. The fact of the matter is that what we tend to do is we take that human part of us given over to pride and we want some kind of recognition. And outside groups are aware of that and they use that against us. And it infiltrates the church at incredible levels. Even doing the right thing, we end up doing it for the wrong reason. I heard of a church that somebody wanted to give a whole new set of hymnals for the whole church. Didn't matter the fact that that church didn't use hymnals anymore. They use a screen like we do. They didn't need hymnals. But somebody wanted to give them and they wanted to give them specifically in honor of a family member who had died. And so they went to the pastor. They asked the pastor if if they could do it. He said, you know, probably you could use your money in a more advantageous way for the church and they were insistent on doing this in honor of this person who had died. They said, okay, that's fine, do it. And then they wanted to put a placard inside of each one of the hymnals. And then they wanted an entire worship service given over to the dedication of these hymns and it beca- or hymn books. And it became a glory show, not for the hymnals, but for the guy that they were being dedicated to. Now, how does that fit this verse? Jesus says... Your motive matters in all of this. And by the way, he says of them, the latter part of verse 2, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The word reward there literally means a stamped receipt paid in full. Nothing else is owed. It's a done deal. Okay, let's go to the next one and then I'm going to move on to some application very quickly. The third verse shows us another statement that's a little difficult for us to wrap our mind around. That is, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We've had a number of years, a number of commentators try to figure out exactly what this means. I'm going to boil it down. I think that Jesus is using it again as hyperbole. It's a ridiculous kind of statement, an exaggerated statement that makes a central point. And the point is this, your giving cannot be for show for other people, so make it as private as it needs to be so that it doesn't become a temptation for you to do it for the praise of other people. Case in point, Charles Spurgeon was one of the great Baptist preachers of the late 19th century. He and his wife had, by the way, he preached to huge crowds and was responsible for hundreds, probably many thousands of people coming to know Christ. But he also raised chickens. And in this chicken thing that he had, he and his wife would take those chickens and the eggs that came from the chickens they would use for their own consumption first and then all the other eggs they would sell to the public and they got a reputation of being hard-nosed about that and their selling of these eggs because they didn't give any of them away 
Even to close family members who would come and say, hey, how about some eggs? They would say, that's fine. It costs you X number of whatever. Pounds, I think, is the way they paid for them because he was in England. Well, they got a bad reputation. Even people in their church started challenging them about, hey, what is this? You get a salary from the church and you're selling eggs. You don't give any of them away. Shouldn't you be charitable about that? And they, didn't, they were unfazed. They just continued to sell those eggs. It wasn't until after Spurgeon's wife died that it became known that Charles Spurgeon and his wife were taking the proceeds from those eggs and supporting two widow ladies in his church who, if they didn't get the money from those eggs, would have no money to live on. They were hard-nosed about the process because the end result was benefiting somebody who needed their help. But they didn't publicize that, even though it cost them something. That gets at what Jesus is saying as a motive in our giving. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Be as secretive as you need to be to avoid the temptation of taking credit that should go to God. With those things in mind, I want to draw a couple of quick applications and we'll be done. The first thing that we have to see here is that when Jesus is given the opportunity to take on this habit, this practice, out of their religion, instead of doing away with it, he endorses it. That should not surprise us. I want to show you very quickly a couple of passages of Scripture. Spencer's got them for us here. Deuteronomy chapter 15. When God was giving the law to Moses and the children of Israel, this is what he said. Chapter 15. Okay, uh, let me just read it. read it for you. Gen, um, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say... The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor neighbor, uh, brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you, etc. What God is saying to the children of Israel at that point is, this is part of how you treat each other. When somebody has a need, you jump to it. Let's try a different passage here. And this one is Psalm 112, verse 9. Psalm 112 gives the description of a righteous man. Verse 9 says, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. The horn is exalted in honor. A righteous person gives freely. One more, actually two more. Amos chapter 2. Now, Amos is giving a roll call of the nations the reasons that God is going to punish them and judge them. And he's talking about Judah. Israel, that is, the northern kingdom at this point. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor unto the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge 
And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fine. What Amos is saying is, you're not treating people, especially needy people, the way God would. And then this next one, Amos 4. By the way, he uses the term cows of Bashan. He's talking to the rich, affluent women of that time, calling them cows. You think he was a popular guy with Amos? Or Amos was a popular guy with them? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, from the mountains of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Time after time throughout the Old Testament, we find the character of God and we find that he is concerned about the needy. It should not surprise us that Jesus endorses acts of mercy, charitable giving, if you will. And by the way, at this point, he's teaching disciples. He doesn't have in mind church groups. He has in mind individuals. He's on a hillside surrounded by individual disciples, giving them a teaching that says... Acts of mercy matter. When he's given the opportunity to do away with the practice, he endorses it instead. That should drive us to critical questions in our own personal lives. How much do I care for people who are less fortunate? How much do I care for people who are indigent? For people who struggle to survive. How involved am I in situations like that? As a church, we should, we are, we must be about this kind of work. But it's only as we do that individually that we come together to do it well as a group. Second thing I want us to see, and I'm done after this, if we're going to do it, and we are, by the way, I'll just stop and say again, One of the things that I believe Crestwood must be about is doing acts of righteousness, acts of mercy in this case, in this community. This church needs to have a reputation of caring about people, even people who don't come here. I'm glad that after nine months here, I continue to get reports from around town about Crestwood and how involved we are and have been in the community. I hear people who say, yeah, that's the church who had people go out after the hurricane and cut down trees and stuff. I said, yeah, that's the church. That's the church who helped me with electric bill or whatever it was. That's the church. We have to care about people. That's part of who we are. And this passage becomes one of those root causes for us as we do what we do in the name of Christ. Because people matter to God. But if we're going to do it, we have to get it right. There's plenty of scripture to support being wise stewards of the resources that we have. I say that because I know that when we hear the passage like this, some people are going to immediately jump out and say, okay, well, it's just an open checkbook. We just hold our wallets out for whoever to come by and says they need something. We just let them take out of the till. That's not the case. Lots of scripture talks about us being wise stewards of the resources that God gives to us. We need to be careful about how we view that and what we do with it. We also have to be strategic in the process. 
You know, one of the things that I figured out because of the addiction issues that I've had in my background, one of the things that I figured out is what I say helps me might not really help me. I know there's a book that came out. I, I was looking for my copy of it. I think I lost it in the move somewhere, but it's called When Helping Hurts. The whole premise of the book is that we can help somebody in the way we think helps them, but ultimately it destroys them. What that means is that if we're going to be about this process of doing acts of mercy individually or as a church, we need to be so involved in the lives of people we're helping that we know what their needs really are. Somebody who's addicted to some kind of a drug, some drug abuse issue, comes to you and says, hey, I need 50 bucks, don't give them cash. Makes no sense. Be strategic. Be good stewards. But in order to do that, we're going to have to be invested in them. So it's going to have to be more than just, hey, we're going to throw some money at you and we'll feel good about ourselves while you go destroy yourself. This has to be a lifestyle for us. As we move forward. Last thing. This doesn't just involve money. I said that at the outset. I say it here at the end. It might involve money for you. Many of you sitting out there may say, I don't have any money to give. Okay. Then your resource extends to your time. Or to your expertise. I'm amazed as I sit and listen to our missions committee as they begin to strategize about ways we as a church can get involved doing this kind of stuff. The resource of this church, finances, people, training, all of those kind of things, those resources make us ripe for getting off of the block and into the community and making a difference. Be strategic. So I started off by saying we're most like God when we see others and treat others the way he does. The reason that's true is because people matter to God. Lauren's over here. When she was a young girl, one of the things that would do, she would do from time to time is crawl up in my lap and we would just kind of watch TV together. She used to suck her thumb until she was like in 11th grade, I think, or something like that. <laughs> but when she was a little girl, she would crawl up in my lap and kind of lay sideways and kind of lounge out and stick that thumb in her mouth and her finger over her nose like this, and she would go to town. And we'd watch TV together, or we'd just sit outside, whatever it was. And uh, so I want you to take that picture and come back to us and our relationship with God. One of the reasons that we'll be about this it's because when we decide on a personal level to experience intimacy with God, to grow in our discipleship, if you want to call it that, our spiritual formation, to become more and more what God wants us to be, it's like we decide we're going to crawl up into God's lap and he's going to hold us. And in the process of doing that, a couple of things happen. First of all, her head would lay right up here on my chest. When we do that, figuratively speaking with God, we begin, his, God's heartbeat becomes the cadence for our lives. And as his heart beats, we begin to work our lives in time with him. And his heartbeat also becomes the heart cry. 
And let me tell you something. We find all through the Old Testament, I've shown you that, I've seen it here with what Jesus says here. We find it in the way Jesus treated people. People matter to God. And so when we come in our, the cadence of our lives is his heartbeat, then we begin to see people the way he does. And that's the second part of that. When Lauren would crawl up into my, la- my lap, she'd see things the way I saw them, or at least from the direction that I saw them. And as I began to teach her some things that I thought were important for her life, she began to process information the way I did. Watching a television program, if the Baylor basketball team comes on and I say, that's worth watching, well, now she knows. If they're on, she ought to watch it. If it's that other junior high team from Alabama, you don't want to watch them. Just kidding, Herschel. You see, when we sit with God, if you will, we see what he sees. And we see it the way he sees it. And the way he sees it is people matter. And especially needy people. And so he says to us as his church, be about it. Invest yourselves in the lives of those less fortunate than you. Make a difference. But do it with the right attitude. If it's to be seen by other people, should we do it? I say no. You hear what I just said? We should do this. But if the only reason we do it is because we want to see our name in lights, we shouldn't do it at all. Let's do it for the right reason. Let's pray. And So, Father, we come asking you to help us to get to the point that we know we need to be here. Help us to see people as you do. We pray that you would broaden our vision as we go through the daily elements of life. That we would see people that maybe we're overlooking now. People with deep needs. Instead of seeing their behavior, help us to see what's behind it. The cries for help. The silent cries that nobody hears. And yet those people are in desperation. Give us eyes to see and a heart that breaks for those who need you. We pray that you would mobilize us, help us to be strategic, but relentless in our reach to people for your namesake. We pray these things in Jesus' name.